I do pray that that is our prayer every day, that regardless of what comes in life, regardless of what storms come in our life, that the anchor of you holds, because we know it does, we can hold fast to you, and that wherever you do lead, in the midst of storms, in the midst of the sunshine, in the midst of going through the valleys or the mountains, wherever you lead, may we follow you, whatever that demands. I thank you for Thomas's song this morning, as it does very much uh, echo the text that we are about to delve into. I pray your blessing upon the ears and the hearts of those who are hearing. I pray that you keep <laughs> my lips and my heart in what is true, and to say what is true of you and of your word. Speak through me or in spite of me, whatever needs be, and convict your church and spur us on in only the ways that you can as citizens of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Been a good Sunday so far, and I do appreciate those songs. You said it was an easy choice, and they're they're, they're good. So thank you for that. As we continue this text in Matthew chapter uh, 10, going into 11, it, it starts out, and I did it a little bit on purpose to divide it where I did. Uh, it's really I divided it in the midst of a discourse. If you notice from the uh, the uh, opening scripture and then the, the title slide before. We're going to start this morning in verse 34 of chapter 10, which admittedly is right in the still the middle of Jesus' discourse throughout chapter 10. And I did that a little bit on purpose. Uh, once, that way we can be reminded that context matters. Uh, you need to be able to understand what came before this in order to understand what's being said, and especially after, but also that this section specifically, and this is why I divided it here, relates into what comes next with the discourse on John the Baptist. But we'll get on that in just a minute. I say all that to say I'm aware we're starting in the midst of something, and while I do that on purpose, never forget the context. This is just a general preacher begging you to never forget context. Always remember what's before so you can understand what's now so that you may understand what's after. The basic point of what we covered last week was this is that Jesus' messenger's mission is to replicate and extend the mission of Jesus, not just to proclaim it, but to demonstrate it. And we talked about that throughout the first 33 verses last week, uh, how they were sent out, they were warned, uh, they were given the example of what the kingdom was. And it wasn't to just go out and say, hey, Jesus is, is this person, but they were meant to. Verse 8, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. And they were to travel simply, and that will come up again in this text. They were warned about persecution. They were warned not to go pick a fight, remember, but they were warned about the persecution that simply being a follower of Jesus would invite and what the message himself invites. It never says pick a fight. Specifically, we talked about, Behold, I am sending you out in the midst of wolves to be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. We are sheep among wolves. It doesn't mean we go pick a fight with the wolves, but it means that we realize when to hold fast, on what principles we hold fast, and be non-threatening so that way the wolves may hear the message otherwise. I even said last week that Jesus doesn't need us to defend his kingdom, but he does need us to replicate it and demonstrate it and be proclaimers of it in multiple ways. Today we continue that theme as we delve into... John the Baptist's thoughts on Jesus' ministry. John the Baptist, who was even the precursor to Jesus, and his thoughts. And I've titled this sermon, Expecting Different Expectations. Expectations are a big thing with Jesus. Expectations are a big thing in the kingdom. 
Because no matter what we expect, not only does God and Jesus usually have something else in mind, hey, I'll amen myself on that one because I've experienced that too many times, but also what we expect the kingdom to look like, what we expect God to do and not do, often is all different. There's a true story that in thinking of this, uh, of a man that I know uh, down in Texas, he has been paralyzed, had been paralyzed from birth. And he went to a congregation which claimed uh, gifts of healing. And so he went before the congregation and uh, a man came and prayed over him and commanded him to stand up and walk. And he didn't. And the prayer's solution was, well, you need to have more faith. Well, a friend of... Admittedly, this is like second, third hand, but it's still true. It's a true story. A friend of a friend of mine, who I heard this from, uh, speak, was happened to be there that night checking out different churches. He went out into the man in the wheelchair and, and said, so what did he say? He says, well, I need to have more faith. And my friend's friend says, well, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died for your sins, that he rose again on the third day and will, will come again to set all things right? And the man goes, well, Yes. My friend friend goes, well, you have faith. But maybe, maybe Jesus doesn't want you to walk quite yet. Whatever it was about that spurred that man in the wheelchair on to form an entire wheelchair disabled person's focused ministry to which I, I haven't kept up with it. I admit, as last time I knew, which was several years ago, uh, throughout uh, his area of Texas, they had baptized over 200 people who were otherwise wheelchair-bound or otherwise somehow just physically disabled. Which the whole point of my friend saying that was, maybe if God had healed you, you wouldn't have done that. But maybe what you expected God to do or hoped He would do was different than what God actually needed you to do. Now, of course, some of that speculation, we don't have an Old Testament prophet to say, yes, that's what God wants, but yet the fruit of the kingdom was pretty interesting in the thriving ministry after an experience of dis being disappointed in God. But that story I want to delve into the text this morning because the nature of the text this morning is very much in that line. Expecting one thing, which is common with Jesus, we have that all over the apostles, <laughs> rain down fire and destroy them, and Jesus is like, guys, <laughs> Peter going, I'll never forsake you, and ten minutes later, I don't know this guy. <laughs> full of expectations, full of differing and uh, unmet, but yet different expectations. It's all over the place. This text is no different. We delve into it as Peter read, Do not think, this is Jesus continuing his discourse, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword, for I have come to set man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more then me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will gain it. Now, much like many people today, I'm sure his apostles at the time were like, Jesus, take a chill pill, dude. You're getting a little crazy. Getting a little harsh. You're getting a little bit like, you know. Well, in some translations, they translate this the same as Luke 14. Anyone who hates his father and mother, his sister and brother. Anyone who hates his daughter-in-law gets mother-in-law. And hates a word, it's a strong word. And it, it doesn't mean anything you know, different than what we say, than what we mean today. 
So what is Jesus saying here? Well, keep in mind the context. He had just talked about in the previous verses that persecution will come simply by being a follower of Jesus. Persecution and dissension will come. Conflict will come. You don't have to go look for it, unfortunately. Sometimes just by being a member of God's kingdom will incite conflict. And where else sometimes is the most conflict about things but your own family? No one wants to laugh at the joke because we all know it's true. (laughs) Jesus is not saying you actively hate someone or actively hate or dislike someone for his sake. Nor is he saying that he is condoning violence. We're going to come to violence in a little bit when it comes to a sword. He's using a visceral word picture of what sometimes being a follower of him does. It's as if you came into your home with a sword and said, here's what I think, and so how do, you, how do people react whenever they're, they feel like they're being attacked? Well, sometimes not well. Side note here, the, Matthew is written to Jews, and so the particular wording here is indicative of a Jewish household. The women who married the men were, due, were going to live with uh, the man. And so it's interesting that daughter-in-law gets her mother-in-law. That's indicative of a Jewish household. It's just a little detail. It doesn't really matter that much to the, de- to the discourse, but it's indicative that Matthew is writing to Jews. But it says, verse 36, a person's enemies will be those of his own household. And this is the crux of it. Whoever loves father or mother more than me. Here's where we understand what the passage means. Whoever loves more, whoever loves son or daughter more, whoever does not take his cross and follow me, is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whatever his life, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What is Jesus saying? It goes against his nature to say actively hate someone. It also goes against Jesus' nature to actively fight someone. What is Jesus saying? He's saying quite viscerally that anything that is loved more than Jesus in your life is idolatry. Anything or anyone. He's not saying to actively go and hate someone on his account. Some people have done that. Actually, it's kind of called the Crusades, but that's a whole other story. He's not saying to go actively hate, but he is putting a very uh, visceral, a very in-your-face, in-your-heart picture of if you love, if you choose, if anyone or anything is in your heart over me, it will cause problems. And he's also warning his apostles and disciples that because I need to be in the forefront of your heart, because I need to be first, whenever someone doesn't share that, what will it do? It will cause conflict. This isn't so much a command as so much an acknowledgement of what is true. The second thing, though, well, actually, I think I have this here. Nope, go back. The second thing I want you to notice is that in the anything or anyone category, obviously there are the obvious ones. There's money, power, authority, position, material things. We all know that, but let's get personal for a second. He gets into personal matters. Father, mother, sister, brother, son, daughter. Yes, even those. But he goes one further. Keep in mind, it's not just about others. He says, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. What are you doing whenever you are carrying a cross? Or you're going to die. Jesus includes the love of your own life, the love of yourself. As if it's placed over Jesus as idolatrous. 
Now, that may seem harsh and hard. It is difficult. Until you realize what placing Jesus on the forefront of your heart does. Look at the last verse. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is getting into uh, a bigger subject than we had today, but I want to broach it. What he's saying here, and this goes back to Genesis 1, being truly human, being truly who we are meant to be, being the people that God made us to be, is being Christ-like. And being like the world actually makes us less human as we were intended to be. That's what Jesus on the top of your heart does. It focuses not only the world's priorities and the kingdom priorities, but it actually puts into focus what truly makes us human. You know, that's, that's an interesting question that we need to ask today. It's a question that's debated today. If you go out to any one random person out there, even maybe in here, and I ask you, what makes you human? I don't know. We ought to have an answer for that, but also, what makes us who we are? Scientifically, we know it's from DNA. The third, the 3.5, what, trillion or billion letter long word that God has imprinted on ourselves. The interesting thing is that in today's world, and I probably don't need to remind you any of this, we live in a world to where this is inconsequential. The imprint that God made upon us for who we're meant to be, the identity that we receive from God, it no longer matters. Today we live in a world to which we can create our own identities. Today we live in a world to which we're not sure if there is absolute right or wrong. We're not sure if there is a right or wrong way to be. And therefore our identities go that way. Well, it doesn't help just to say it's wrong because what good does that do to someone who believes it? What we can say is that if you have created your own identity in your own image or in the image of something you worship, how does that work out for you? Inevitably, you'll fail yourself inevitably what you worship will fail you and then when it does fail you either you'll become just bitter or you'll become so enraptured with wanting love and affection from that thing that you will become insane basically wanting and desiring something which you will never get this is what putting Jesus on the forefront of our heart does that it reorders our love it reorders our focus and it reorders even our very own humanness in receiving the identity that God gives us and made us to be, and by receiving that identity and living up and focusing ourselves in that identity, God will never fail us. And even when we fail Him, He never holds it against us. It's the only kind of identity which never puts the pressure on us, which never fails us, which never creates more stress in us, but it gives us true freedom, gives us true liberty, gives us true meaning, gives us true eternal life. Didn't expect to go there with this verse, did you? From the very beginning of Genesis 1, when God creates us in His own image, that's what He's saying, is that this is the way to be human. In my image. How long, how long did it take us to mess that up? This verse, while innocuous in the midst of a whole bunch of stuff, 
speaks to a much greater principle than that by receiving the identity that God gives us. The only way to be truly human. Now, it doesn't mean that you're stuck in only doing this or that. There's huge amounts of freedom. We'll get to that later in this sermon. It doesn't mean that you're stuck. It doesn't mean you're controlled. But it means you are free to be fully human. How many people need to hear that message? See, the thing is, I'm going to, this isn't part of the sermon, but it's, I'm hitting it, and it, it needs to be said. So often the church tries to answer questions that no one out there is asking. Very few people out there are asking, how do I take care of the badness in my life that I may go to heaven? One, there is no heaven. Two, there is no badness in your life. So what do we care if we try to answer that question? Why do we try to answer, well, the Bible says, who cares about the Bible? Church, we need to stop ask, answering questions that no one in the world is asking. And we need to start answering the question which everyone is pining to want to know. Meaning, do I matter? Who am I? What am I? Why does this life matter? What kind of person am I meant to be? I don't know what you want to do with that, but that's something that's on my heart pretty heavily. That's something we need to take into consideration when we talk to people outside. not about what we think. It's about what they don't know and need to know. But, keep in mind, whoever receives you, whoever receives me, whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I tell you, he will by no means lose his reward. And just talking about how people receive you. And granted, in this culture, sometimes hospitality was expected. The bottom verse in the culture means that sometimes a family only had a cup of cold water to give someone who was at their door. But what God says, literally in this text, is that if someone gives it by, in, by receiving you, by receiving you as my messenger, he is blessed. They will have a reward. Now what does that mean for us nowadays? It means that whoever receives you as Christ's messenger, whatever you have to give, regardless of how insignificant you think it is, God can use for amazing things. God can use in ways that we can't imagine. Even if it's literally just a cup of cold water. What is that today? Even if it's just a Dutch Bros coffee. Even if it's just you know, a gift card somewhere. God can use that for His glory and that small, insignificant action in our minds is not without reward. The good kind of reward. Not that you're trying to earn points, but God noticing and saying, yes, that's the kingdom. How often do we not do stuff because we think, oh, that doesn't matter? How often do we not do stuff or talk to someone because, what do I say? I can't answer if they ask. What's the meaning of life? I have no idea. Well, no one does. What you have what you have right now, what you have, God can and will use if only you're willing to act. Even if it's just a cup of cold water. Even if it's just your story of saying, look, I was here and now I'm here. I don't know why, I don't know how, but I can only tell you what's true. How many cups of cold water go ungiven because we think that God can't do something with it? Not everyone will receive us. 
but yet there has to be something which makes the church different. I've often asked this question. It's a good question. What really makes the church nowadays different from any sort of other social club? On the one hand, on the one extreme, you have people so concerned with serving and doing justice and serving the homeless that they never really get around to talking about Jesus. On the other extreme, we have so many people willing to talk about it and condemn other people and to proclaim it that we forget the other side of things. On the one hand, we're just political commentators. On the other hand, we're just a social club. What makes the church different? Whatever we do, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord. It's not just a song. It needs to become our way of life. That knowing that even whatever this small cup of water has done, if I give it to you in the name of the Lord, God can and will use that. And that's what makes us different. Doing things in the name of Jesus. Doing things as kingdom citizens. Not just doing good things. Doing good things is good things, sure. But doing something in Jesus' name, in the name of the kingdom, that's something far better. What I'm trying to tell you is not to... I'm not telling you to go do more stuff. What I'm telling you is what you already are doing. Do in the name of Jesus. And don't not do it because of what you think about it. A cup of cold water could lead to someone's eternal life. The seeds that you plant that you may never see... Talk about John the Baptist. We're about to. He started a ministry. He never saw the end of it. In fact, we're about to go into his doubts. But the seeds he planted paved the way for Jesus. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord because God can and will use it. And that's what makes the church different, brothers and sisters. If we don't do it, if we don't do also in the name of Jesus, both purposely, whatever that is, what are we? Here's an interesting thing, too, about the next... Uh, and shoot, there is text behind that, and I did animate that. So I did the Zoom thing. I'm happy with that. I had to have one tech fail. It's all right. Let me read this. <laughs> Starting in verse 1 of chapter 11. Just watch. I'll bet, it's, I'll bet it's somewhere. Oh, well. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went from there to teach and preach in the cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? What are, what are we saying that John has here? It's pretty obvious. John has doubt. Doubt sometimes might as well be a four-letter word in some Christian circles. If you doubt. Have more faith. What does Jesus respond with when it comes to John's doubts. Jesus answered him, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Notice what Jesus does here. He doesn't say, John, John, just have more faith. Or, John, you know me. How does he respond to doubt? Jesus honored John's doubt. John's doubt is honored by Christ. Not condescended, not condemned, not instructed, but he says, yes, the things that I'm doing that you see, these are the things of the kingdom. He quotes Old Testament prophecy. He's already quoted in Matthew. Probably John already knows. He says, yes, these are the marks of the kingdom. Most likely John is, is wondering, or at least his disciples are wondering, why aren't you doing more of the big stuff, the, the militaristic national stuff? Why aren't you, you know, overtaking Jerusalem? Why aren't you... 
Is this really, are you really? Jesus says yes. He doesn't condescend. He doesn't make fun of. He doesn't just go, oh, John, come on. He honors John's doubt. See, doubt is not a sin. Doubt never is. Doubt is someone wondering what's true. And that should be a question none of us should be afraid to ask. As they went away, Jesus goes one step further, began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. There's a couple of things here. John not only, Jesus not only takes John's doubt, but says, even in the midst of John's doubt, Look at John! Look at John! What does he talk about? Expectations. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? Someone who kind of is shaken by daughter in the winds? Someone who's dressed in soft clothing? No, you went out to see a true prophet of God. And he's not what you expected. What is Jesus doing here? He's actually referring back to what I talked about last week, that part of the apostles' mission were to live simply, to distinguish, one, themselves as, two, people on a certain kind of mission, as, three, a mission from their God, not someone else's, but also four, to distinguish the hearers that see them, to see who will truly want to receive that kind of Messiah. Jesus is referring the same thing back to John, saying, look, he had a particular way about him and you knew who he was, you knew how he lived, and that speaks well of him. He was spoken of before, and he says this, among you, born of women, there is arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he What is he talking about there? John could only proclaim that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. He never got to proclaim Christ crucified and the kingdom, in a sense, fulfilled in order to be fulfilled. That's the message that is greater than the one that John the Baptist preached. But what does he mean about greatness here? Because this does apply to all of us. Notice what Jesus says, if this is true. He talks about John being a messenger. And because of that, no one is greater than John the Baptist except those who have a message greater than what he did. This is why a cup of cold water works. Because what makes a servant of God great is the message that the servant bears, not the servant. This is what makes doing things in God's name so powerful because it's not about you, not about me. It's about the message that we bear about the why that we bring. It's about what we do in whose name and why. Who have we placed on the forefront of our heart that we do this thing? This is why this works. I'll put it another way, which is in your face, but hopefully it gets the point across. You are not that important unless... No, I don't like that. That's bad. (laughs) You yourself are made great, not by you, but by the message of being in the kingdom of God and being a messenger of Christ Jesus himself. Not by your own deeds and not by simply living. You are good. You are amazing by the fact that you're here. But what makes any servant of God great is the message that the servant bears. Therefore, we must know and believe and trust and act. Dare I say replicate and demonstrate 
the message that we have. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent taken by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. If you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. There is a lot written about this verse. Well, there's actually either a lot written about it, because no one quite, there's a differing opinions, or this is one of those verses that commentators skip. You ever notice that in commentaries, there's like two words written about a verse, and they move on. We're like, that's why I opened this commentary. I say that to say, there's a lot of opinion about what this means. Contextually, the most likely explanation is that from the days of John the Baptist, proclaiming the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, meaning people have tried to not only take the kingdom and do things with it that was not what the kingdom was meant for, militaristic, take over the world, nationalistic Judaism, that kind of thing, but also, Jesus is once again using very visceral, very in-your-face language to describe how people try to enter the kingdom. They try to force their way in. They try to say, yes, I belong here because... Didn't Jesus just get, say, get done saying that only he who loses his life will find it? Only he who is least in the kingdom will be greatest? That John the Baptist was not great by his deeds, but by the message he bore? This is the most likely explanation. And look, I could be wrong, but so could you. So could they. I'm probably wrong on 30% of what I preach. I just don't know what 30%. That's true for everyone, by the way, not just me. <laughs> don't let me be your preacher, please. This is how people approach the kingdom. This is all linked together. How people engage with Jesus. What people, how people react to the kingdom. How people react to Jesus' servants. Some people try to take it by force. Some people try to enter it by force. But he's saying, no, 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 no. You need to accept what is written. If you have ears, really listen to what's being said. It actually goes on to comment on that, which is why I think it says that. It says, but to what shall I compare this generation who should be listening? Like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. Let's handle this one first real quick. First of all, calling a generation children was an insult. And the language here makes us think that Jesus is actually making an allusion to spoiled children who have the luxury of hanging out in the marketplace and being upset when people don't want to play their games. We sang this, but you didn't dance. You sang this, you didn't do it. Why aren't you doing it my way? Why don't I get what I want? I always think of Veruca Salt from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Um, who's a bit of a golden egg herself, but that's a whole other. Watch the movie. He's referring back to the point that spoiled children in the marketplace are only concerned with what they have, and they're not actually willing to listen to what's true. They're not willing to change what they think because of what's true. And they're not willing to truly listen. He's saying that generation is akin to that. Why? Because John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of cats, collectors, and sinners. Jesus is saying, you people, we can't win with you. One person acts one way for the kingdom. One person acts this way for the kingdom. You condemn us both and you think you're on the right. This was serious when it came to John and Jesus, obviously. John ended up being beheaded. Jesus was being crucified. But what's the principle for us? This hits home the fact that kingdom roles look different. That there are different roles to play that 
people carrying out their call in God, not just in jobs, this was an easy visual, but people carrying out their message to their people in such a way that is their cup of water may look different from how you do it, but don't you, don't us, be like the Pharisees of that generation who said, he's a demon, he's a drunkard, all of you are horrible, who's next? Melissa actually happened to my Bible a while ago, so I was afraid that would fly and hit Roland in the face. I talked about smacking people with the Bibles. It almost happened, brother, so just be thankful. How you shine your message to Jesus, of Jesus to the world, may not look like someone else, and someone else's may not look like yours, but do not be like the generation of Jesus and say, because it doesn't look like how I want, don't be like the spoiled children saying, that's not how I would do it. Don't you condemn another man's servant. He goes on later to say, we all have different roles in the kingdom. That's good. We all have different sizes and temperatures and ways of giving the cup of cold water. What matters is that we give it in a way that glorifies God. And in fact, that's the end of this section. The fact that not only will true kingdom work be seen by those who are truly wise in the kingdom. Think about the implications of that. Well, they didn't do it how I want. Jesus is calling you a fool. <laughs> Not only will this determine from people inside the kingdom, but also this speaks to those who recognize it. People who recognize what they seek in the world will recognize true kingdom work in the world. And the people who won't, won't. The principle, I think, that all this is saying that we must not be afraid to do what Jesus, the entire passage, is calling the apostles to do and therefore calling us to do. Replicate and extend the mission of Jesus to proclaim it and demonstrate it. Not for each other, but also be aware that we cannot and should not always comment on how they're doing it if they're doing it for God. Not everyone will respond we know that. Be it wisdom both in and out of the church. Done for the right reasons. Kingdom work will be justified by the very deed of doing kingdom work. Giving the cup of cold water while some people in and out of the church will say, that's all you got? Or give them this cup. Do it this way. Someone who needs it will recognize it for what it is. Those in the church who recognize it for what it is will come alongside and encourage and join you. The whole point of this passage is twofold. One, to not only talk to the generation outside to recognize the messengers of Jesus, but almost more so to keep in mind that the people who are charged with reflecting the image of God and bearing the cross, make sure that you are actually doing that. Not just being spoiled children. Jesus' language not just being people who talk about it. People who recognize the differences, we can do it. People who recognize the charge we have. People who truly recognize what it means to be Jesus' followers. And if all you have is a glass of cold water, to give it and give it with all the faith that you have in the name of God. It's a challenging section. One that with God's power 
we can rise to the occasion to. I invite you to reflect upon this and how this ought to impact your walk this week. And maybe consider what cups, as I said earlier, what cups of cold water maybe haven't you been giving out that maybe we ought to. What ways can we demonstrate the kingdom? What ways can we do all the name of the Lord?